Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Our reading this evening is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 12 to 42. If you have a church Bible, you'll find that starting on page 1097, 1097. Acts chapter 5, beginning to read at verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought those who were ill into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing those who were ill and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force, because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious 
and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you, Penny, for reading. As Johnny mentioned, my name is Justin. It's lovely to see you all this evening. Um, do keep your Bible open there in Acts chapter 5. Let's pray as we come to God's word this evening. Father, thank you that you are a great and wonderful God and that you have set your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as ruler of all people. Father, please help us by your spirit to see that he lives and that no one is greater than him. Give us assurance that Jesus is Lord and that our lives are safe in his hands. We ask this in his name. Amen. Don't we all want to do something or be part of something that is significant? Something that is worthwhile. We all want our lives to be significant, don't we? Sometimes we can do things in life um, that we thought were worthwhile, um, but then something can come along and knock it off the shelf of life, as it were. And it can be lying on the floor, strewn all over in pieces. And we wonder to ourselves, was that worthwhile? I wanted to illustrate this point by using my son's Lego. And I asked him, could I use your Lego thing, model or whatever it is that you made and knock it off? And watch it fly all over and break into pieces. And he said, no. And understandably, because to a young boy, that was worthwhile. He didn't want it to break. I certainly felt 
a bit like this after university. When my final project for the year was done, it was then put into my parents' garage and later to be chucked. And I wondered to myself, was this all worthwhile? Why did I study fine art? You probably have foresight to see that it's not worthwhile studying for fine art. But maybe that's how you have felt or how you are feeling about something in life. Maybe studies. Maybe it's a job or a business project or a relationship or a friendship that didn't go as you'd hoped and you were left wondering or maybe are left wondering, was it worth it? Have you ever felt that way about being a Christian? You can remember there was a point, whether it came suddenly or gradually, when you were certain that Jesus had died on the cross and that he rose again and that there was nothing more worthwhile than being a Christian because you had the hope of eternal life. Jesus is alive in heaven, risen and ruling. And because you are certain of this, there was also nothing more worthwhile than sharing this hope with others. Maybe that's how you have felt in the past, but is that how you feel now? Maybe you didn't expect that things would come along and knock your faith and knock you around as persistently as they have. Well, perhaps a wise Christian, an older Christian, told you that this is what it is like being a Christian, that you will be knocked around by things in life, but you didn't expect or anticipate how tough it would get. See, something that can cause us to question if it is worthwhile being a Christian is increasing rejection, resistance, and even antagonism for sharing the gospel of Jesus, particularly when it comes from people who are more powerful than us. It's easy to doubt that being a Christian is worthwhile when the rich and the powerful in the world are the ones who dismiss Christ when his name is notoriously used as a swear word, or it is Bible-believing Christians who are portrayed as um, people we need to be wary of or suspicious of on television, or when we read in the paper that Britain is not a country for Christians, or when policies and personnel make it increasingly difficult for us to share the gospel in our society. And this question, if whether it's worthwhile being a Christian and sharing the gospel of Jesus, well, it becomes more pointed when you're publicly shamed by a lecturer. Or maybe you're asked to see the HR department because you've shared your gospel, or the, your faith at work. Or there's name calling, or cold shouldering, or there's a door that's been closed to you, maybe at work or at home or a door that's opened for you to leave. Maybe it's an older person in your family who has warned you not to speak the gospel of Jesus to them. Or perhaps it's something even more serious, like a friend of mine at university. He was from a Hindu background. And his sister, his older sister, attacked him with a kitchen knife after he became a Christian. And when this kind of opposition persists, and there is an increasing cost to us, it unsettles us. 
Because being a Christian can appear ridiculous and shameful, and it can be scary. And behind all of this can sit a niggling feeling that we have, a question that persists. Is Jesus alive? Is he in control? The new life that we profess to have as Christians can begin to feel, well, a bit stale and unsatisfying and maybe even distasteful to the point where we're not sure we even want to share it with others. Well, this evening I want us to see that in this passage, God is assuring us that there is nothing more worthwhile than being a Christian, someone who has put their faith in Jesus. God is assuring us that he is at work through his Son and through the message of his Son. And despite opposition from people who are more powerful than us, he is in control, and he will make sure that nothing can stop others from hearing this message of new life. We're going to look at this passage under three headings. Firstly, the opposition. Secondly, the message. And thirdly, the inevitable victory. Let's look at our first point, the opposition. Um, it should be on the board. I think it's... No? Okay, don't worry. The opposition. It's simple enough. You should be able to remember it. Well, in this passage, we see that Jesus and his message of new life was under increasing opposition from the Jewish religious leaders. Acts chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 37, and chapter 5, verse 12 to 34, the passage that we're looking at, they are mirror passages. The storyline in both of them is similar. In chapter 5, however, things increase. The spread of the gospel increases, and the power of the gospel is increased. So we see that, for example, in verse 15, where even the shadow of Peter is able to heal someone. But opposition increases too. You see, in chapter 5, all the apostles are opposed, and not just Peter and John, in chapter, like in chapter 3. Here in chapter 5, they are arrested twice and warned not to preach the gospel. In chapter 3, it was just once. In chapter 4, verse 16, the Jewish leaders asked, what are we to do with them? But now in, chap in chapter 5, verse 33, they want to kill them. And in verse 40, they had them flogged, which was so severe that it would have left someone close to death. The increased opposition came from Jewish leaders. And in verse 21, we're told that they are the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. You see, the Sanhedrin was the highest Jewish court and civil authority. They had civil authority and administrative authority to judge cases in Israel according to their law, the law that God had given them in the Old Testament. And the Sanhedrin included in verse 17 the high priest and all his associates who were members of the parties of the Sadducees. We find out in chapter 4, verse 6, that the high priest's name was Annas. And he had patriarchal power that he exercised over the priesthood for decades through his sons and his sons-in-law. And he'd worked out a compromise with Rome so that he maintained political power in Israel. He was also a member of uh, the Sadducees, a religious party who denied the possibility of miracles, the existence of angels, 
a future resurrection and eternal life. And what we see in this passage is that they were primarily opposed to Jesus and his message that he is the living one and the Savior who gives new life. In chapter 5, verse 28, they say, We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name. And in verse 40, Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They opposed Jesus, or they opposed the apostles because they opposed Jesus himself, who claimed to be God, to be the Son of God. We read in Luke chapter 22, verse 70, and 23, verse 1. These same people, they asked Jesus, Are you then the Son of God? And he replied, You say that I am. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate to be crucified. See, they would have known from Old Testament passages like 2 Samuel chapter 7 or Daniel chapter 7 that Jesus was claiming to be the promised king, the one who would be the king of the nation of Israel and who would rule God's kingdom forever. Why did they oppose this message and Jesus himself and his messengers? Well, they did it to keep power. We read in verse 17 that they were filled with jealousy because in verse 16, not only was Jerusalem, but everyone even from the towns around Jerusalem was coming to the apostles. They were jealous. History is full of people who assume that God is on their side or that they can bring humanity hope and it's worth siding with them but in actual fact they're opposed to God and his people and we see this most clearly with political figures or some political figures figures like Stalin or Hitler or Pol Pot who have wreaked havoc on the world either in opposition to God or in the name of God but what about others in society those in the judiciary, a lawyer or a judge. Or more recently, over the last decade or so, we've heard voices of the new atheists like Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens. Or maybe even culturally, someone like Kanye West before he was claiming to be a Christian and compared himself with Jesus. See, those who have power in this world will use it to try and stop the gospel of Jesus or to persuade us that they have something better to offer us. The aim is to try and get us on their side, to follow them. And they will do this because they refuse to recognize that Jesus is their Lord and King and that they're answerable to him. God had in fact said that this is how powerful people in the world would respond to his King in Psalm 2. We were thinking about that this morning. And in verse 2 of the psalm, it says, The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his king. The gospels show us that opposition increased towards Jesus. In the end, he was killed. Opposition increased towards the apostles. The more they spoke the message of Jesus, the harder it got. 
And so increased opposition from powerful people towards Jesus and his message is proof of who he is rather than a reason to doubt who he is. And if it is true that opposition didn't go away but got worse for Jesus and his apostles, then why do we think it would be any different for us? Jesus was honest in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35. He said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. As Christians, if we have or have experienced opposition, we're to be encouraged that we're on the right side. We're on God's side. And we're to see through this passage that it is worthwhile. It is worthwhile being a Christian. But I want us to consider this more closely as we think about our second point, the message. The message. The message that the Jewish leaders opposed is all about Jesus. We read in verse 20 that their message was about new life, which we can have because in verse 31, God exalted him. God exalted Jesus to his own right hand as prince and savior. We're to see that Jesus is the living one. He is God. He is creator. He is the one who gives life. He is the author of life. And I think this is what is meant by Peter when he says in verse 31 that Jesus is prince. Or translated there as prince in the NIV. The Greek word is archagon. Or as it is translated earlier in chapter 3 verse 15, author. And this word can have a range of meanings. It can mean leader or originator or author, the one who starts something, the one who leads a movement. In chapter 3, verse 15, Peter said to the Sanhedrin, they killed the author, the archagon of life, but God raised him from the dead. And so in the context and in the structure of how Luke has laid out these passages, it makes me think that What Peter is saying in chapter 5, verse 31, is that Jesus is the author of life. And we're told why he is the author of life. It's because God the Father and the Spirit raised him from the dead. He's been raised from death to life. He is the living one who lives forever. And because he is the author of life, he can give new life, eternal life. You see, he's not just the founder of a company that developed some anti-aging cream. Jesus is a trailblazer on a whole new level. The apostles, well, they didn't make up this message. They say in verse 30, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. And God had promised in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, that one like a son of man would rule over his kingdom forever. And in verse 32, they say that they are witnesses of this. And because Jesus is the author of life, he is Savior. He is the Savior. In verse 30, we read that it is by his death and resurrections that he saves us from death. We deserve death 
for our sin. God had said to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, that if they rejected his word, if they disobeyed him, then they would die. And to reject God is to reject the one who is the author of life. And therefore that leads to death. Jesus died hanging on the cross, literally a tree. And it's a reference to Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, which says anyone who is hung on a pole or a tree is under God's curse. Jesus experienced the curse of sin, death. But it wasn't for his own sin. He didn't reject the Father or the Spirit. But all of us have rejected God. And so when Jesus died, he was suffering the consequence of our sin in our place. And he did this as a sacrifice. The way God's people were to be forgiven in the Old Testament was through a sacrifice. A sacrifice that was made at the temple by the high priest. An animal died in your place. And through that death, your sin was forgiven. And you were able to live. The temple and the priesthood were intended to point us to Jesus. And in verse 31, we see that Jesus died and rose to bring people to repentance and to forgive their sins. But do you see the irony of what the high priest says in verse 28? He says that that the apostles are determined to make them guilty of this man's blood. The truth is that they were guilty. But they denied it. They were guilty of rejecting Jesus, the author of life. They hung him on a cross. The one who could save them from death and sin, they killed. And if they saw their guilt if they believed and accepted who he is, well, then he would forgive their sin, but they refused. See, the Jewish leaders opposed the message of Jesus because the gospel says that Jesus is at the center of God's kingdom and his plans, not the temple or the priesthood. We have life by his death, and he rose to give us new life. I remember 1994 very vividly. Um, the year that South Africa became a democracy. And I remember what it was like sitting in a school assembly where we had a new flag and we sang a new national anthem and we were told we had a new president, a new leader who had set the country free. It was the start of a new South Africa. And it would have been crazy and criminal to have gone back to the old ways and hung the old flag and sung the old national anthem and disregarded the new government. You see, the apostles' message is that Jesus is now the king. He is the one who is ruling and he is the one who is restoring God's kingdom. 
And he does this through the message that he is the living one and he is the savior who can bring us from death to life. If we come to him for the forgiveness of our sins. And for those of us who are Christians, the new life that we have in Jesus means that being a Christian means more than anything else in life, doesn't it? More than any threat that we face because we have new life in Christ. Don't let your faith get knocked by those who are more powerful than you. Because it's true, they are more powerful than you. But they are not more powerful than Christ. He is the living one. You see, the world and its leaders, they might tempt us to buy in to what they're offering us. But none of them would die for you. None of them would rise for you from the grave. And none of them can give you eternal life with God in his kingdom. That's not to undermine how hard it can get as a Christian or how hard and fierce opposition can be for talking to people about Jesus. But we're to see how much greater Jesus is, how much more powerful he is. He is alive and he is ruling. And if you're someone here this evening and you're not a Christian, well, you need to see who you are opposing if you are rejecting Jesus. You are rejecting the author of life. The one who died for you. The one who can give you eternal life in his name. If you trust in him. If you come to him for the forgiveness of your sins. And that is what we as Christians here believe. And that is the hope that we believe we have. Lastly, I want us to be confident that it is worthwhile to be a Christian because of the inevitable victory the inevitable victory. The inevitable victory is that because Jesus is risen and ruling, he will ensure that his message will go out despite opposition from more powerful people. Gamaliel, who was one of the most important rabbis of the day, a member of the Sanhedrin, he stands up and he says in verse 38 to 39, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Which, of course, they were. What did they expect to happen if they were opposing God himself, who they hung on a cross, who died and rose from the, from the dead? What did they expect would happen if they opposed him? Well, this passage is full of irony. And it's to show us how ridiculous it is for anyone to oppose Jesus and his message. In spite of their opposition, he will ensure that people will hear that he is the living one and he is the savior. The Sanhedrin, they really do look ridiculous, don't they? You can imagine the look on their faces when they realized that the apostles were back in the temple preaching the gospel that they had just locked them up for. And God set them free with an angel. Something that they didn't even believe in. God 
cares very little for what powerful people do and don't think about him and his ways. You see, despite liberal theologians in the early half of the century or previous century talking about and saying that the Bible is not inspired by the Holy Spirit, God's word has gone out. And people have continued to trust in Jesus. Despite the vocal agenda of the, na- the new atheists after, over the last deco- decade or so, the gospel has continued to go out. In fact, I find it quite surprising that students today are more open to talking about spiritual things and big questions in life than they were a decade, 10 years ago or so when I was last year in the UK. And I wonder if it's because New atheism and its push against Christianity and faith and miracles and all these kinds of things, well, it hasn't been able to give a sufficient answer for the problems of life, like a global pandemic. And so we're finding younger people asking important questions that they haven't been able to get answers to elsewhere. But another surprising way Jesus works in this passage is through Gamaliel. It was help from the enemy's own fold. And he was beginning to see something of who Jesus is. You might remember Christopher Hitchens, who was one of the new atheists, more notable new atheists. And how his brother Peter, who was also an atheist, changed his mind and trusted in Christ. Or even Kanye West, who himself has claimed to be a Christian. We mustn't miss that in the face of opposition from powerful people, Jesus works by his Spirit as well to embolden his powerless but prayerful and obedient messengers. In chapter 4, verse 31, we read, The apostles and the disciples, well, they prayed, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And despite their imprisonment, in chapter 5, verse 29, they say, we must obey God rather than human beings. And after that, they are flogged. And they rejoice because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. Jesus is working. And he is ruling. And he's ensuring that his message of new life will not be stopped or silenced despite opposition. That is meant to assure us that it is worthwhile being a Christian. It is worthwhile to keep sharing the gospel of Jesus whatever the cost and however difficult the opposition might be. The proof that Jesus is alive and ruling is not that there is no opposition, but that the gospel continues to go out despite it, however fierce it gets. I wonder if you've heard of the the rumor that Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg are meant to face off in a UFC cage fight. I know, it's quite funny, isn't it? And that's a fight that's dripping with irony. Uh, But who would win? I wonder who, who would actually win in that fight? Well, in many ways, who actually cares? But what if you heard that Mark Zuckerberg was fighting 
Conor McGregor or The Rock. It's inevitable who's going to win that fight, isn't it? Those who are clearly more powerful and intimidating than us, they may do us harm. And they may. But they are not fighting us. They are fighting God. And that should make us concerned for them. Because it shows that they don't have the hope of eternal life that we have. We will suffer for boldly sharing the gospel. But we can doing, do it knowing that we are forgiven and we have eternal life. What emboldened the apostles was the certainty that Jesus is alive and ruling. And it is worthwhile sharing the gospel because that is how Jesus is working to restore his kingdom. So we don't have to share the gospel because God needs us. He can do it without us. And he will. But we have the privilege of obeying him and being part of his great work. And as we share the gospel of Jesus, he will be building his kingdom one person at a time of those who come to hear this message and trust in him and find new life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of your Son. We thank you that in it is new life as we come to trust in the living one, the Savior, who can save us and forgive us from our sin and death. We pray that you would help us to share this message with others, knowing what a great Savior Jesus is. And we pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen.